I Read Comics, Episode 9. Yes, it's another comics podcast, and the big difference is, I'm doing it, and I'm a girl. That's right, a girl that reads comics. My name is Lena Taylor, and I read comics. Look, another show. Aren't you impressed? Here's the administrative stuff right at the beginning. Website, ireadcomics.blogspot.com. Email, lena at troubledscience.com. Send me email, send me comments. I wanted to start off with the new thing, which was news that I heard um, on another podcast. And this is actually really cool. I'm very excited about this. There's going to be a Buckaroo Banzai comic book. I love Buckaroo Banzai. What a great movie. If you don't know Buckaroo Banzai, you really should. It's a totally wacky movie. Um... You just, I can't even explain it. You have to see it. The reason I love this movie is because it is totally over the top. It's crazy. Uh, it involves War of the Worlds and Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Also because it has two extremely hot guys in it, Peter Weller and Jeff Goldblum, 1984. Very, very hot guys. And John Lithgow, who is more over the top than over the top as the villain in that movie. So Moonstone Books acquired the rights to it this year, and they are announcing that the comic book is actually supposed to be out by the end of the year. The really cool thing is that it's being written by the writer of the movie, Earl MacRoush, and it's being helped. It doesn't quite say how they're doing it by um, the director, who is W.D. Richter. So... It's going to be a color miniseries. Um, if you go to the Moonstone Books site, and I'll put up a link to this, you can actually see some of the art, which looks pretty damn cool. Um, it looks like they're drawing Buckaroo to sort of look like Peter Weller, but not completely. And um, there is another guy who kind of sort of looks like Jeff Goldblum. This is from the cover, because um, I don't see him in the inside art. And then there are supposed to be two bad guys. One of them looks like Ian McKellen, and the other one looks like Christopher Walken. So I don't know what that's about. Um, so this is really very cool, a Buckaroo Banzai comic book. I'm definitely going to be getting this. And what a great idea to bring that out. Um, I was trying to, uh, I was researching this online and finding out that, you know, Buckaroo Banzai has been out in a lot of different formats and there was supposed to be a sequel to it. You know, at the end of the movie, they actually announced a sequel, which was never made. And I'm wondering how much interest this might spark in the movie again, if it's a really good comic book and people pick it up. Um, I hope it's a lot, because it's a great movie that everybody should see. Of course, it came out in the mid-'80s, which was a, a formative period of my life, and it was for a lot of other people. And it's one of those movies, I think, not a lot of people saw in the movie theater. I didn't. But th it was one of the things where they showed it, like, 150 times on HBO, or you'll see it on the weekend really late at night on USA or Spike TV or something. So if you haven't seen it, I strongly recommend that you get it. And go take a look at the art because it's pretty darn cool. Did you all notice that there was no gay porn in the last podcast? 
But there's gay porn in this one. Na, 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 na. It's the last issue of Sticky that was so kindly sent to us by our very good friends at Fantagraphics. And I don't really have that much to say about it, except I like it. Of course I like it. Um, it, it strangely enough, it was not as compelling for me as the other two issues of Sticky. And I think that's because this one had less plot, had more art and less plot. And I'm not quite sure why that was. Um, the art is beautiful, of course. And uh, Steve McIsaac, I think, took more time to draw more of the room where all the very graphic gay sex is taking place. And there's a, an interesting theme to it, sort of a nautical theme, which is really cool. I like that. And um, the guys are really hot looking, although I have to say that with each succeeding issue, they're getting more and more Tom of Finland-ish. And I think you know what I mean by that. Not necessarily a bad thing, but definitely less realistic in terms of um, their bodies. And I mean that in an overall way, not just the genitalia. Uh, and it's got a nice happy ending, which I like too. So I was happy to get Sticky number three. I'm very happy I have all three of them. Now, from what I understand, they're not going to do any more Stickies, which is a real damn shame. Um, I haven't heard any more from our friend Eric at Fantagraphics about all that. Um, but we have been in touch with Dale Lazaroff about that, and he seemed to indicate that Sticky might continue in some other way, although I'm not really sure what that is. And he's doing other projects as well. But um, I think that is probably the last sticky that we're going to see from uh, Eros slash Fantagraphics for a while. But I'll be on the lookout for other gay porn to talk about. So don't you worry. We'll still continue to do it. And looking for other um, smutty comics as well. In fact, I think pretty soon I'm going to have to do a really long segment about Molly Kylie. So if you haven't looked at Molly Kylie's comics... Um, you should, because, man, they're good, and she can really draw. In fact, um, if you ever a chance to go to my website, the iReadComics.blogspot.com, and you see my little icon that's there. It's a drawing of the tattoo that I have. Molly actually did that for me. I sent her a picture of myself, and she went ahead and turned it into a beautiful drawing because I just love the way she draws, and I wanted to see what that would look like, and she did a just fabulous job. And that's why I decided to use it as my icon. So you can uh, look for Molly's stuff. I'm pretty sure most of it you will find at um, the Arrow site at Fantagraphics. She's had some um, single things in some other Fantagraphics books, and she actually did a really more political, topical piece in a zine that I used to work on a long, long, long time ago called Inquisitor. And it, it was a story that we asked her to do about um, the... Uh, it's not pornography, but it, it was um, obscenity, actually, for uh, the Mike Diana zine, Answer Me, because she had had a piece in there, too. And so they were trying to figure out if this thing was really obscene or not. And she was called because she'd had a piece in there, and she wrote us this wonderful story about it and what it felt like to have to go and talk about that and why she felt that it wasn't obscene. And she has really good reasons for thinking that. So if anybody would ever like to see that in The Inquisitor, drop me a line, uh, Lena at TroubledScience.com, and I'd be more than happy to send you a copy because, frankly, I've got about 500 of those sitting in my garage, and they're not doing anybody any good right now, although they do provide good insulation in the winter.
Libraries rock. I know I said that before a couple shows, but I want to say it again. My library rocks, and yours probably does too, so go and visit your library. The reason my library is so cool, and I just found this out because I'm stupid, and of course I didn't think to look for these things. I just started looking for names of writers and comic book artists that I would be interested in reading, and maybe not buying, but reading, and damn, if they didn't have pretty much everything Alan Moore has ever done at my library. Like, wow, that's just so cool. So I checked out a few things, and I've got two things that I want to talk about right now. This is the something old portion of the show. So let me talk about the Alan Moore one first, and this is Saga of Swamp Thing. So this collection came out in uh, 1987, so it's really old. And if you're listening to this, oh, you probably have it and you probably read it by now. But, you know, I never read it. I never read the whole thing. And I'm really glad to be able to check out this book and look at it. And it's funny looking at it from, um, you know, almost 20 years looking back at what was being done then. Because in the context of today's comics, it's not shocking. It still feels very contemporary to me looking at it. I don't look at it and go, wow, this is a 20-year-old comic book. I look at it and go, oh, this is great. Look at this story. Look at the writing that's in here. This is so cool. Um, The art in this book is by Stephen Bissett and John Totalben, and it's really, really beautiful. The reproduction is very, very nice. Even though it's on cheap paper, um, the color is really good. And, you know, if you know the story of Swamp Thing, this, this collection... Um, was the backstory for how the new Swamp Thing got to be the new Swamp Thing. So um, there's a really nice introduction by Alan Moore where he recaps a lot of what had gone before so that you know what the hell's going on when you start reading this. And then you just kind of jump right into it and find out, you know, what's happening. And um, aside from the, the fighting the bad guys part of it, there's these wonderful hallucinatory sequences where Swamp Thing is trying to come to terms with what's happened to him and who he is and where he exists in the world. And then there are so many long... um, What's the word I'm looking for here? There are long passages where you really get the feel for why he's so content to be part of nature and what that feels like for him. And it's not just the art, it's the words that convey it as well. And... um, what an ecological statement. It's really great. And when he finally gets pissed off enough to detach himself from the world of, of green, you really feel his wrath and how wrong it is. Um, it's it's just pretty awesome. So I'm so glad I finally got the chance to read this. And if you haven't read this already, if you're like me and you weren't reading comics back then, find it. Um, you know, go to the library. Maybe they'll have it like they did at my library. Or um, you might find it in a used bookstore. But I, I definitely think it's worth it. I don't know what's next on my Alan Moore list. i got to go check it out um, to see what they've actually got in store. But I can't wait to read more of this stuff. What a great collection. Published by Vertigo, by the way, and this is book one of the trade paperback collection. The other book that I checked out was a totally off-the-wall thing that I had no idea what it was, but boy was I glad that I got it because I love these kinds of books. It's called Fortune and Glory, and it's by Brian Michael Bendis. You know Brian Michael Bendis. I'm sure you've heard of him. He writes comic books. Um, This particular collection, it's not a collection, it's a book that he drew. It was a collection of stories that he had done a really, really long time ago. Um, This came out in 1999. 
a really long time ago, in comic book time, it's like eons ago. And it tells the story of what happened to him when he got involved in Hollywood as they were trying to option and develop some of the um, early things that he had done when he worked on Jinx and then he worked on something called Torso. I have to say, as an aside, um, reading this really made me want to go out and get those books. So now I have to find them. Um, I especially want to get Torso because that sounds like the sort of true crime thing that I really dig. I like true crime stuff, and that sounds really, really wonderful. I have heard, and I checked this out on the Internet, that um, supposedly uh, Todd McFarlane is optioning and trying to develop Torso. So that's a really cool thing, and I wonder what's going to happen with that. You know, Bendis is supposed to be involved, and he said that he was going to... Um, you know, write the the script for it or be involved somehow. So, like, what the hell? Maybe we'll see that eventually. But this book is great because it's about comics, but it's also about Hollywood, and it's also about Bendis as a person. It's very interesting the way he portrays himself here. I think it's different. He's a different guy in a lot of ways than the guy that people perceive him as now because He's such a big name, and he's so on top of things in the Marvel Universe, and, you know, blah, 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 like that. But at the time he wrote this, of course, he was not a struggling artist, but he was still an indie guy, mainly, and trying to get his stuff out there. So there's a lot of good humor, um, really good humor. There's a lot of funny stuff, because he's a really, really funny guy. And the way he's drawn this, it's all black and white, of course, Um, he's used a lot of indie comic techniques um, that that you'll notice, but he also has a very cinematic style too, which is really good. There's a lot of words; it's very wordy, but that's okay. A lot of what happens is through conversation, and you know, clearly he writes great, great dialogue. Um, it's very, um, what's the word for the art that he's drawn? It's it's almost like Sunday Comics kind of art. There's not a lot of detail to it. It's very clean and simple lines, but he's done an amazing job of making all the freaks that he meets in Hollywood um, look different. You can tell by their eyes and their their posture um, what they're about, you know, that they're they're all lying to him and ready to shaft him and all that stuff. And he's he's picked up on a lot of the, the Hollywood types. So I didn't even know this book existed, and there it was in the library, and I picked it up, and it was a great, great read. So if you haven't read this, if you can stand to read anything else by Bendis, pick this up, because I think you would enjoy it. Um, He doesn't portray himself as a guy who deserves any of this, and the big theme throughout the book is, um, is this really worth it? Is it worth everything that he has to go through, and is it worth all of the self-doubt that comes with it? Because... In Hollywood, the way it always happens is people are really excited when they meet you and they promise you the moon and then nothing happens for a long, long time or ever. So it makes you, it's being on this emotional roller coaster all the time. And he does an excellent job of chronicling that. So um, I'm going to try to pick up Torso because that sounds really cool. And I'm going to look around and see if I can find any more news about Torso the movie. And when I find it, I will pass it on.
speaking of true crime, I also wanted to talk about something that's not published yet. <laughs> and the reason I wanted to talk about it was because I hadn't actually thought about it for a long time. And then I remembered, hey, this was supposed to come out this year. And you know what? It never did. So what I'm talking about is an original graphic novel called Brownsville, written by Neil Clyde, and I hope I'm saying his name right. It's spelled K-L-E-I-D, and the art is by Jake Allen. It was supposed to be published this year by a company called NBM Publishing, which, frankly, I'd never heard of before. I got a preview for it at Comic-Con 2004, and I thought it, it was so cool-looking. I was just so excited, and it was supposed to come out in 2005, and I kind of forgot until I remembered, hey, wasn't that supposed to come out this year? So I went and I looked around, and the information on Neil's site says it's actually going to be out in 2006, but it doesn't say when. So I will try to keep that updated, but I, I wanted to alert everybody to this because I think it's going to be great when it actually does come out. It's a book about Jewish gangsters, believe it or not. Now, if you know about... Um, the gangsters in the early part of this century, you know that even though the Italians were um, running a lot of what was going on in the mafia at that time, Jewish gangsters were also extremely powerful and worked with and against the Italians at different times. I have to say, you know, partly I like gangster stories because my mother is Italian and she's from Brooklyn and she once dated a guy who was sort of like a semi-made man and there's a really, <laughs> whenever she sees the picture she says, you know, I didn't like him, he tried to boss me around. So this graphic novel tells the story of um, two of the gangsters who were members of Murder Incorporated, which was the Mafia's enforcement arm. So here they were working with them. Um, so you get to meet in the first 14 pages um, the story of a kid named Ali Tannenbaum, and he meets Louis Lepke. Now, you might know about him. Um, he was one of the most famous Jewish gangsters of that time, and Tannenbaum met him when he was just a boy. And you can see from this first meeting what's going to happen it's really clear that Ali even though he's just a boy has now had his feet set on this path because he's completely entranced by um, the power and the um, the fame even on a small scale that the gangsters are able to command and that for them life is pretty good he understands that it's not a good life and that bad things are going to happen but he's just so hypnotized by it you can see that he keeps getting drawn to it again and again, even though his father says, don't do this. You don't know where this is going to lead. It's going to screw up your life. You know that's where he's going to go. So it's supposed to be 196 pages, which looks just completely awesome. It looks like it's going to be all black and white. Um, I don't know when in 2006, but I hope it's soon in 2006. So I just wanted to uh, kind of give that as a preview for something good that's coming up. It seems like true crime is a really big genre now in comics and I don't ever remember it being a genre you know if there was ever a crime before it was sort of on the cops and robbers sort of crime and then um, suddenly there's been this interest in true crime stories which I think is great I mean there's nothing better than taking a true story and making it into a comic book and telling that story in a really compelling way um, and not just reducing it to the bare bones of what it is but in, not improving on it but um, making it more accessible or reaching into it, you know. Um, I, I guess the most extreme example of that is, is Alan Moore's From Hell, which takes a true story and weaves a whole mythos around it in a way that's just um, becomes instant myth almost. And that that's 
like polar opposite from what this Brownsville book is going to be because From Hell is very lyrical and it's very um, spiritual in both good and bad ways, whereas Brownsville, the art and the way that the story is told is so direct. It's like, it's gritty. It is really gritty. So gritty Jewish gangsters. I, I highly recommend it. I tell you to run out and buy it, but you can't. But I'll let you know when it's actually available for you to spend your money on. fun things in the online realm this time. One is a webcomic, and I want to say that I enjoy webcomics. I don't read too many of them. Um, somehow it's a daily commitment that I find harder to make than picking up the newspaper while I'm having breakfast. I know some people really, they read them religiously. Um, I wish there was a better way to aggregate them. There's a thing you can do on LiveJournal where if there's something that has an RSS feed, you can add it to your friends list and it shows up, which is how I get Alien vs. Predator now, so I don't have to remember to go to the Alien vs. Predator site. I also get This Modern World that way because it's easier. So uh, if I could wish for something, I would wish for a way to aggregate all the webcomics I like in one place at one time. Okay, that's my wish. But since I'm not getting my wish right now, let me tell you about this very funny webcomic called Year One. And it's at year1.spiderspawn.com, and I'll put the link in the show notes. And it's done by this very cool Australian guy named Mike Parkinson. And what he's done um, is take Marvel characters and make little chibi versions of them. You know, the chibi versions are from manga, and um, sometimes they're called super deformed, but it's like taking a regular human and making it down to um, a childlike size and making the eyes really oversized. Um, You see that in regular manga, and you also see it in manga TV shows like the TV Teen Titans when um, there has to be a lot of emotion shown or a lot of reaction. The characters shrink down to that little size, and they're called chibis. So that's what his whole comic is of all the Marvel characters. And he writes this really funny dialogue about... Um, they're, I mean, they're gags. They're jokes and they're gags. It helps to know a lot about the comic universe before you read this. So if you're a comic geek, you will totally get every joke and think it's hilarious. And there's some really good visual humor in there as well. And he's put an amazing amount of characters in. The art is really good, too. I mean, they look like you would expect the characters to look. So can't really recommend that too highly. It's pretty funny. If only I could have it delivered to my door, that would make me even happier. And the other online thing that I discovered pretty recently but have wasted... I can't even tell you how many hours I've wasted going through this site because it is so damn funny. It's called Dave's Long Box, and it's located at daveslongbox.blogspot.com. It's just a blog. It's not an audio blog or anything. Done by a guy named David Campbell who lives in Washington. He is a totally knowledgeable comic book fan and a fan in the way that... um, really just tickles me because he's a fan of everything good. He's also a fan of really bad stuff. And he knows his comics going back right through the 60s and the 70s. 
And in the blog, he talks about things he likes and things he doesn't like. But he also focuses on really obscure characters or the really wacky DC comics of the late 60s and the 70s when characters did all kinds of crazy things. And he's done like a huge amount of scans for everything that he talks about to illustrate why it's good or why it's bad. So I like the fact that his blog posts are kind of equally divided between things that he's mocking and things that he thinks are really good. And when he talks about both of those things, the good and the bad, he uses lots of examples to say, here's why something is really good or here's why something is really bad. So to give you some examples, um, he cites a really, really bad um, Batman comic from 1975, uh, Batman 268, when he's fighting a bad guy called The Sheik. Okay, Batman versus um, a guy dressed like a, 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 a shake, if we want to say it correctly, but it's spelled in a really funny way, S-H-E-I-K-H. I don't quite get that. Um, and he's dressed like, uh, you know, a desert nomad, and he's riding what looks to be a camel, although it's pretty much the ugliest camel I've ever seen on the cover. Um, so Dave, in Dave's long box, gets into all long explanations um he he goes to great length to tell you what happens in the book and then he tells you why things are completely ridiculous and gives examples from each and everything so i'll just read you a couple things cuz he says it much better than i could ever uh paraphrase <laughs> so he says um this issue was written by Denny O'Neill with pencils by Irv Novick and inks by Tex Blaisdell all edited by the legendary Julia Schwartz who's still working on comic books I think this book is a product of its time and a good indicator at the of at the general tone of DC books at the time. By that, I mean it's goofy as hell. Batman and Robin go up against the Sheik, a masked Arab assassin who is seemingly killing people at random. I hope I don't wreck it for you when I say that the Sheik is actually two white guys conspiring to kill a business partner or something. I'm a little fuzzy on details. All I know is that it ends with a big ice skating fight and the Sheik has to swat people with his exploding rifle. And... Both of those things are absolutely true, and he shows you pictures to prove it. Um, he shows art where um, Batman punches the Sheik, who's wearing body armor under his robes, and Batman says, ow. Um, he also butts heads and says, ow, again. Then uh, after he has a fight, Batman goes home and has um, Alfred bandaging his hands because he got hurt when he was punching the sheik who was wearing the body armor. Are you following this? Just making sure you're paying attention. So Batman says, if you've got to bandage them stiffly, wrap them in fist form. I have a hunch I'm not done punching tonight. And Dave says, this is where the comic derails and plunges to a fiery doom at the bottom of quality gulch. The Riddler factor, which is what he calls for really stupid things, is so pervasive in this book that Batman makes some insanely stupid choices, like, I'm not done punching tonight, so wrap my hands up into big soft boxing gloves, Alfred. Wrap them in fist form, because I only plan on punching tonight. That's all I've got on the agenda. No driving, no opening doors, no picking things up, no ice hockey. Nope, just punching. And then Dave says, It's so stupid that the first time I read this comic, I thought Danny O'Neill was trying to be funny, but no. And you know what? In the next panel, Batman can't open a door because his hands are bandaged up into great big fists. And they're bandaged up into really big fists. You have to see this art. It's like not even his hands. It's like he's holding on to footballs. And then there are bandages over the footballs at the ends of his hands. It is really very, very hilarious. And... If you've ever read any of these comics, you know that this was the general tone at the time. 
sure enough, next panel, he and Robin are on ice skates and they're beating them up in ice hockey fashion, um, however that works. And then in, in one of the panels, he also points out that um, Batman chokes a camel. And I'm not going to say anything more about that. So I strongly recommend, one more time, go to Dave's Long Box and read it. You can just spend, I don't know, two or three days going back through all the posts that he's made. Um, right now, <clears throat> he has a feature going on that's called Boob War, where he's talking about uh, comics, past, present, that feature uh, women with uh, ginormous breasts and very little clothing, and clearly the main purpose of it was to show off said breasts and said lack of clothing. And he gives great examples. Um, he talks at length about a Dazzler comic from 1982. Um, he talks about some other... Um, uh, wait, let me find it so I can quote it exactly. Let's see, there was Dazzler, and then there was... Lady Death, Judgment War Number 1, which came out in 1991. So he's being completely fair, going around, sharing the blame with everybody for the Boob War books, um, and talking about uh, <laughs> why they might have done things like that. And he even includes Phoenix, Legacy of Fire, which Marvel put out in 2003. And boy, if that's not a Boob War book, I don't know what is. Um, they sure do like to draw those really big round boobs, don't they? Wow, that's pretty amazing. Um, so, yeah, go check out Dave's Longbox. You'll really enjoy it. And I think that will wrap up this show. Drop me an email, lena at troubledscience.com. Visit the website, and I'll try to uh, post some interesting images there, iReadComics.blogspot.com. <laughs>